through human means the effort or, or, or the results rather that they experienced. This is the tragedy in so many evangelistic campaigns. They ignore the fact that the first thing you have to do if you want to experience widespread effective evangelism is you've got to pray for the spirit. That's the first thing the church needs to be doing. But once she becomes full of the spirit, then she will have unction and evangelism. More on that later. The next thing we see, as I say, things are moving very quickly. It almost reads like Mark, where we move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. We see Philip's ministry in Samaria. We've only looked at verse 4 thus far. In verses 5 through 8, Philip went down uh, to the city and preached Christ to them. We read of the signs and wonders he did there. And, uh, well, not only that, but verse 6, multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken uh, by Philip. Verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Uh, verse 12, uh, we read that uh, people were turning away from Simon, the great figure in that city, to the, uh, not the apostles, I almost said the apostles, but to Philip, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus. Both men and women were baptized. And then verse 25, we see this more widespread work. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. What we have here in those verses, verses 5 through 8, verse 12 and verse 25, is that there was the outbreak of revival, which is what happens when the spirit is poured out. There was a revival first in the city of Samaria and then in the surrounding regions. And that's, uh, by the way, what we'll see again and again in Acts. Acts is a kind of series of revivals from one place to the next. What you notice here is something uh, well, that you will notice if you read the accounts of the revivals in the first great awakening, just as an example, or in the second great awakening or in, in many other eras of of uh, the church where she experienced this. And that is, as I've said before, the difference the gospel makes. And I would add beyond that, the difference that uh, a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit makes. What you find is that uh, it's wonderful to see. It's difficult even to comprehend given what we see today, and that's the prevalence of widespread unbelief and the church in a state of utter compromise. But you, you, you really see the opposite. You see widespread belief. You find that uh, from the top to the bottom, entire towns are willing to give up their unbelief. They're willing to give up their idolatry and they're willing to acknowledge the name of Jesus. You see that uh, places of sin, the marketplace of sin is put out of business, literally. That's what happened here. Paganism for a time is all but wiped out in entire regions. Again, you read this throughout history. All because, here's another amazing thing. Here's another wonder of the gospel. All because of the preaching of one man. Philip came and he preached to them and look at the difference the gospel made. He was a man who was full of the spirit, the unction of the spirit. And do you see how the entire town was Converted. If you read the history of revivals, that is what you will always see. Now, am I saying that is something that lasts forever? No, I'm describing something exceptional. You find converted they were, on they go for a time, and then uh, over the course of time, things go back to what they were, though not in the case of everyone. Not in the case of everyone. The implications of this, uh, I think, are obvious. And that is, well, we want to know what they knew, don't we? We want to experience what they experienced. 
it's tiresome to have so many Simons in our day and so many following after him and so few following after Christ. And we pray that men like Philip might be raised up and might convert entire towns and entire regions and that there would be this general outpouring of the spirit and that there would be this general response. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Now, I'm asking you if that's something that you want to see in your day. I can tell you for my part, it is. it's something I want. And it's only something that I can pray that we might see, that we might see the multitudes once again respond to the preaching. Now, as a result of this, we have this notable example of Simon himself in verses 9 through 13. We have uh, the account of his former ministry, let us call it. It was a false ministry, but he was the prominent religious man. He was, you might say, the magician of his own day, like uh, the rivals of Moses. He was, a, he was able to work mighty works, and his power almost rivaled that of Philip, though even he was bound to admit Philip's power was greater. And as he was given to this kind of superstition, he himself was amazed, and he acknowledged, in a way, the greater power of Philip. And, well... Uh, we read of what is his seeming conversion, that he was baptized along with the rest. Following that, there is the apostolic delegation in verses 14 through 17, which mirrors what we have in Acts chapter 19. These men were baptized in the name of Jesus, yet they lacked the Holy Spirit. Now, that's different than Acts 19. In Acts 19, they were baptized in the name of John. They needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so they received the Holy Spirit. But here is a historical anomaly. I'll leave it there for a moment. But we have men who were baptized in the name of Jesus who believed they were brought into the church, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. Hold on to that thought. But uh, just the fact that it is such a historical anomaly, let us see that it required the apostles to investigate, to remedy the situation. It has also brought about a great deal of debate, even to our own day, as to what exactly is the lesson to be learned from that. Finally, we read of Simon's treachery in verses 18 and 19. I'll read those verses. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay uh, hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power they had. That was his treachery. Peter denounces him in the strongest way. Verses 20 through 23, uh, most notably verse 23, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That's become a kind of famous line, uh, although uh, it's, it's stated a little differently in the older translation. And uh, what we see finally is uh, Simon's false repentance, I would call it, in verse 24. He answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you've spoken may come upon me. Now, you might say, no, he did really repent there. Uh, but I would I would challenge that and suggest, as I will later, that no, in fact, that was a false repentance. Well, let me come, as I like to do, to the implications of this story, of this history. Three significant points that Luke is making. This is one of the challenges, by the way, in preaching Acts. It's well, it's seemingly so similar. It's narrative after narrative after narrative. You have. Basically, the gospel is preached and people come into the church. That's the story that keeps getting told over and over again. And it takes a little bit of work, thankfully not a lot, to see what exactly is this new episode contributing to the overall picture. The first of which is obvious. 
Uh, the other two perhaps less obvious, but three points. The first is the spread of the gospel into Samaria. That is something which was uh, was tremendous. If, if you like, in terms of Romans chapter 11, which we've been looking at, as, as I've been saying, the Jews one day will be called. Well, here God was calling the Samaritans, as uh, there were indications he would. Now he was. Now he had called the Samaritans. The gospel went to them. It would be impossible, and I admit I'm not much of a student of this history, but it would be impossible to overstate the significance of this long-standing animosity between the Jews in Jerusalem and then those in Samaria. Let me just read a selection from John Stott, who I think really helpfully summarizes this background. He says, it is hard for us to conceive the boldness of the step Philip took in preaching the gospel to Samaritans. For the hostility between Jews and Samaritans had lasted a thousand years. It began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th century B.C. when the ten tribes defected, making Samaria their capital and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. It became steadily worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 B.C., Thousands of its inhabitants were deported, and the country was repopulated by foreigners. In the 6th century B.C., when the Jews returned to, the land, to their land, they refused the help of the Samaritans in the rebuilding of the temple. Not till the 4th century B.C., however, did the Samaritans' schism harden with the building of their rival temple on Mount Gerizim and their reputation of all the Old Testament scripture, their repudiation, rather, of the Old Testament scripture except the Pentateuch. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion, as both heretics and schismatics. John summed up the situation in his statement that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus' sympathy for them, however, is already apparent in Luke's gospel. Now in in, in Acts 8, Luke is obviously excited by the evangelization of the Samaritans and their incorporation in the Messianic community. There is the long-standing animosity, a thousand years, at least according to Stott. And yet here we find that uh, these people, these outcasts, we could call them, were being called. They were being grafted in, again, to use the language of Romans chapter 11. And we are to appreciate the redemptive historical significance of this. This is something that was occurring by God's own design and purpose. Jesus himself states his design for the gospel in this way. Acts chapter 8, 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here we have And 8.4, so that's 1.8, now 8.4, the fulfillment of those uh, those words. We have the evangelization and the resulting revival that breaks out there, but that's not the only thing we see. We also see this fascinating experience where they receive the word and yet not the Holy Spirit, not until the, the apostles come. This is something strange. Philip preaches the word to them. They receive the word. They are received in the church. They're baptized. And yet they do not receive the Holy Spirit. As I say, that was enough of an anomaly for the apostles to come and investigate and remedy the situation. What is the explanation 
for what happened there. It's not as it was in Acts 19. It wasn't, well, we were baptized in John's baptism, but we needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. No. So far as we could tell, everything happened as it should, and yet they lacked the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's two explanations. One is the Pentecostal explanation, and that would be the same for Acts 19. And that is the fact that a man may believe and be converted and yet not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You need a second work of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit being something in addition to conversion. I suppose I could add a a third view, which I'll call the second view, and that is the Roman Catholic view based upon these verses of confirmation, which requires the laying on of hands. I'm not too familiar with that, but uh, I have been reading some about that in Calvin and now in the commentaries on on these verses. But there's a third view, and that is that this is something which is obviously exceptional. Obviously. Peter says that if you believe upon the name of Jesus, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is his testimony as early as Acts chapter 2. And that is the uniform testimony of the book of Acts. That is the uniform testimony of the epistles, that a Christian is someone who possesses the Holy Spirit from the moment he believes. In fact, the, the, the one who enables him to believe is the Holy Spirit. What, what was happening here was something, I say again, that was a historical anomaly. It was something that the apostles had to look into. And it doesn't say why this anomaly existed. It, we might just simply say, you know, it's an, an anomaly and we don't know. But along with many of the commentators, I think we can surmise that because this was something that was shocking from the standpoint of the Jew, that now the Samaritans were being grafted in, that God was adding his seal by sending the Jerusalem apostles, who were Jews by birth, though Philip was not, to, to bring them in uh, fully into full membership of the church. That's my explanation. God was adding his seal to this work in this special way. He was designating uh, a kind of mini Pentecost to celebrate the, the engrafting of the Samaritans into the church evangelization of these people we get a sense of what paul says throughout his epistles over and over again that there's neither jew nor greek uh, or he puts it in, in various ways and here the sense is made clear that any man who professes the name of jesus might be full of the spirit and he might therefore enjoy full membership and status into the church that's what's already becoming clear here in Uh, in the first point with the spread of the gospel into Samaria. Number two, this is a point which isn't as obvious, but which uh, I noticed many making something of, and I want to make something of it, and that's the difference between evangelism and preaching. This is evident in the words that Luke uses. There is, from what I can tell in others, an intentional difference that he is highlighting, and here I must lament uh, the New King James as well as the King James' unfortunate use of the same English word. We read that they went everywhere preaching the word, and then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Uh, that, that is an unfortunate translation because it misses uh, the, the obvious sense in the Greek that, uh, that the SV, for instance, clearly highlights that in the one case it was evangelism verse 4 they went about evangelizing and then along came philip afterwards and he preached to them 
And when we understand the difference between those two words that Luke intentionally uses in different cases, we will see the difference between these two activities as two separate activities of the church. Now, on this one point, there was no difference whatsoever between evangelism and preaching, and that is that the content of both is the same. Both of them are spreading the gospel. In that sense, you could say one was preaching the word, the other was preaching the word. Or you say uh, they were in evangelizing, they were preaching the word, verse 4, and then Philip was preaching Christ. But really, he's saying the same thing in both cases. That the good news, that's what evangelism means, by the way, the spreading of the good news. The good news was being proclaimed. And that good news was for a Samaritan Uh, the same as it was for a Jew or for you and me, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins will be wiped away and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, though in their case they had to wait just a little bit longer. That's the good news. But what is the difference? Well, I want to highlight this difference, and I was reminded in my reading of Preaching and Preachers many years ago that this is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones highlights in the very first chapter. He's pleading, he's making a case for preaching uh, he's describing the way in, in which it's something, uh, it's something unique and separate. He speaks of, uh, well, this is what he says about chapter 8, which are these two verses. In, in chapter 8 of Acts, we are told a great persecution that arose in Jerusalem and how all the members of the church were scattered abroad except the apostles. What did they do? We are told in verses 4 and 5, therefore they... Uh, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That's verse four. That does not mean preaching from a pulpit, he says. Someone has suggested that it should be translated gossiping the word. Now, I have to tell you, that has stuck with me all these years. They went about gossiping the word. He goes on, their chief desire and concern was to tell people about this word. Then, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto him. There in verse 5, a different word is used. This means heralding. It is more a picture of a preacher in a pulpit or at any rate standing in a public place addressing people. And so it goes on right through the book. There is this difference then. Evangelism is something that you can do wherever you are. They went about, everywhere they were, they went about gossiping the word. They were talking about it. They were always talking about it. They were eager to talk about it. And yet, in one sense, you see, it has this ordinary quality to it. It's something that any Christian can do wherever he is. That's evangelism. But preaching is something that has a more official character. It it requires gifts. It requires calling. It requires ordination. It requires setting apart by the church. You see, all of these people could evangelize. But it wasn't until Philip arrived that there was preaching. If I may say so, and I say so not in pleading for my own case, but in appealing to what I believe is the scriptural case, preaching comes with a greater power and a greater authority. Something of this Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He speaks of not coming in persuasive words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power in his preaching. There's a real power in the preaching, a power to convert, a power to convict. This is what Paul was telling Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. This is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 10. He says, how will they believe unless they have someone to preach to them? And and how will they preach unless they're sent? 
Well, you see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, he says. You need someone to preach to you. You need the preaching. And when the preaching occurs, well, then faith occurs. But how does preaching occur? It occurs when a man is sent. It has this official, authorized nature. And that is why it wasn't until Philip was there that revival broke out. And that's also why not anyone, uh, not anyone can preach. In fact, I, just today I heard someone say, you know, I, when I was converted, I started preaching. <laughs> I thought, well, I, I think that's based upon these two verses. I think we're a little bit confused there. Let, let's get our categories right. The layman evangelizes, the minister preaches, though the content is the same. The difference is also seen in the act itself. While evangelism has a more ordinary character to it, the evangelist being the ordinary Christian, the preacher is a herald. Now, I've been saying evangelism means spreading of the, of the word or, or the good news, excuse me, spreading the good news. But this word that he uses for preaching in verse five has the sense of proclamation or heralding. And so he is to herald or proclaim the message. And obviously... That fact will be reflected in the act itself. May I, may I humbly suggest that perhaps the state of preaching is today as it is because, uh, because people have forgotten what preaching is. Men have ceased to herald or to proclaim the word. And that is obviously something more than ordinary conversation. It's something more than evangelism. Something in a different, uh, something, uh, in a different category. The difference between these two things, talking the word and preaching the word, you see, both are powerful, both are effective. The spirit uses both, but there is a difference. It's a difference, let me say, that is evident uh, often in the same man. I'm suggesting that sometimes uh, I hope I can say that I'm preaching and sometimes, well, I'm just talking. You see, I'm just talking the word, but other times I'm preaching the word. Only a minister can preach, but I'm actually suggesting that there are times when he isn't preaching. He's just talking. And if you read uh, the works of preachers such as Lloyd-Jones and others, you'll find that they're often often reflecting upon this. There's something mysterious about this. How is it that I can describe what preaching is? When is it that I am aware? I I mean, I as the generic Christian self which includes you along with me. When are we made aware that preaching has occurred? Well, I would, I would quote John Murray, uh, paraphrasing what he says, and I don't know of a better description than this. He says, I don't know how to tell you what preaching is, but I know it when I hear it. That's my answer. We know it when we've experienced it. Or Lloyd-Jones would say something like, Well, it's when a man gives me a sense of God, when through his preaching, he's brought me into the presence of God. There was something of God in his message. That's how I know it was preaching. Now, I'm not saying you can't have that in evangelism. Don't misunderstand me. I'm simply trying to describe what makes preaching preaching. And this is something, again, which you cannot manufacture. It's not something that's automatic. There are those who say, well, if a man is authorized, then when he stands up, he's always preaching. But I'm not so sure about that. There is something special about preaching. We know it when we've experienced it, and the results will speak for themselves. The nature of preaching, if I could put it like this, all has to do with the nature of the word of God. The word of God is powerful. It's effective. It's dynamic. It's meant to be preached. 
Its power is meant to be unleashed in the power of the Spirit through the preaching. And when that power is unleashed, it will be known. The Word of God is meant to be preached. It is not enough, I'm saying, to sit in your room and read the Bible. It's not even enough to evangelize. It's got to be preached. And when it is, then as I say, the results will speak for themselves. Nations, kings, men and women, multitudes in God's own own timing will be turned to Christ. And the key point here, bringing these two things together then, I've been pleading for preaching and so I still do. But I, I say at the same time, the world desperately needs both. Not preaching only, but preaching and evangelism. The world needs preaching. Start there. Though the church seems to have forgotten what preaching is. And is there anything that so describes the church as she is and even the world as she is? It's because the world is or the church has ceased to preach. But what I'm saying is she begins to preach again. Then just you wait and see what will happen. We should look for preaching. We should pray for preaching and we should expect great things through the preaching. But the world also needs evangelism. The church is meant to do both. Christians are meant to gossip the word. That's a provocative way of putting it, but I'm going to keep saying it. It's useful. The Christian is meant to be gossiping the word wherever he is. And that's the amazing thing about evangelism is that anyone can do it anywhere. And look at what happens when that occurs. Now, I will admit, for all my pleading over the years for preaching, even this evening, a lack of balance on this point. And I'm not alone in this. There has been a decided balance, lack of balance in favor of preaching. Well, in some sense, that is scriptural. But in another sense, it's wrong never to speak of evangelism. I suppose if anything holds me back, it's just the sense that, again, you can't manufacture these things. How do you accomplish evangelism? Well, it's impossible until the spirit is poured out. But once he's poured out, well, then evangelism is more or less inevitable. But one of my happy discoveries, just to share with you, and I have shared it with you again and again, is aside from having met uh, over the last year or two so many good preachers in the OPC, is I've also met a good deal of evangelists. And in many ways, I have to say that encourages me more than anything else. Yes, indeed, there are evangelists in the OPC, and may there be more and more. Let me come to the last point, and that is the difference between true and counterfeit conversion, which is obvious in the case of Simon. So we have the difference. It's a happy difference between evangelism and preaching. But here's an unhappy difference, and it's between the true and the counterfeit. This is something that is common. It's something that always happens in the case of revival. In fact, if you read in the First Great Awakening, again, you have this general conversion, or so it would seem, of entire towns, and then only with time it becomes clear who was really converted and who wasn't. Well, who was converted, even in in those cases, is, is a great deal many more than in the ordinary case of the church, though we discover sadly with time that many we thought were converted were not. And Luke, in his own way, is highlighting that phenomenon here, though in this case it happened very quickly. It would seem that as a result of Philip's preaching, that everyone was converted. Multitudes were coming in the church and were baptized, but Luke is saying, well, wait a second, not so fast. You see, he's highlighting this in order to point out this essential point, that there is such a thing as the counterfeit in the household of God. And the wheats and the tarot are always sown together. So then this man, Simon, it would seem soundly converted along with the rest, He, along with the town, brought into the church, and yet he was exceptional in this sense. Not in that he was formerly prominent, but in that 
He was not, in fact, converted. Look here, Luke says, for all appearances, he too had become a Christian. He had professed faith. He had undergone baptism. Yet one thing he lacked, which was the new birth. He was not a Christian. And so it's evident, Luke is saying, that a man might undergo these things outwardly. Baptism, professing faith, and yet still stand outside the true church. You see him even at the end. When, when Peter preaches to him, when Peter convicts him of his sin, he essentially says, you're lost. And you say, well, did he repent? Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things that you've spoken may come upon me. But even then, you see, he gives it away. For one thing, he's afraid. He's afraid somehow that these men of greater power are going to condemn him or destroy him. And he doesn't have any sense that he might pray to God. But he's still appealing to their greater power. He had no sense of the new birth or of the power of the kingdom of God, which is inward always. Looking a little bit before that, when he says, well, this thing that you have, let me buy it. I'll pay you money for it. As many of you know, that's the sin of simony or simony. I'm not sure how to say that, but that's. A sin named after the man. You don't want to have a sin named after you. I can tell you that. But there's a sin named after him. This was a man who thought that the free gift could be bought. He didn't know the first thing about the kingdom of God. The grace of God is something that's free. It's offered to all freely who have faith. You cannot buy God's grace. You cannot buy office. You cannot buy authority. And you certainly cannot. The words are fearful even to utter. You certainly cannot buy the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bestowed, not bought. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God, freely received by little children. One of the things that I think Luke is indicating to us here is the thing that revealed Simon for who he was. And it was his response in particular to the Holy Spirit. You see, he had a kind of general admiration for these apostles and their power. He even, it seemed, was interested in the church and her rites and ceremonies. He was open to this message about Jesus. But just as soon as the Holy Spirit was mentioned, well, then he was found out. He was revealed. He betrayed himself. And so this is a kind of principle, I think, that Luke is telling us. So often what reveals the man in times of revival or even outside of such times The false sons in her pale, so the hymn goes, is the man's disposition to the Holy Spirit. And how important it is, Luke is saying, and I am saying that we should see this. The difference between the true sons and the false. Oh, yes, it is true. Jesus tells us. And so I tell you that there will always be false sons in her pale. And yet, isn't it amazing to see how willing Peter was to address it once it had become clear You see, Peter wasn't skeptical about this man. He was willing to receive him once he professed faith, so he was baptized. But once it became clear, Peter didn't say, oh, no, this will throw off the numbers. Things were so happy when Simon had converted. This was perhaps the greatest testimony of of, of the mission here. No, he was perfectly willing to compromise all that in the outward sense in order to achieve integrity. And as for the man who is the false professor, well... I say, just as we must deal with him after the fact, so it all, uh, we must deal with him rather 
once it becomes clear. So in his case, it often appears after the fact. The man who appears to be the true Christian in time, it is clear he is not. And may we be like Peter when it is obvious in our own cases. I mean, in the case of our own churches. Well, I would conclude just by saying this very briefly. And it's, it's me pleading for what I've been pleading for all along. What is the book of Acts? What's its message to us? Well, Luke is telling us this is what the church was like in her earliest days. This is what she experienced when, don't forget Acts chapter 1, when she was just a small number looking for God to act. And they didn't know when that would occur. They were just told to pray and to wait. In many cases, I think that, that describes us now. We're just... Well, we're just some 70, 80, 90 people. Well, there were 120 people there. But look what God did with them when they were set praying. And we see what the church and what the kingdom of God is capable of in this world when it is full of the Holy Spirit. The church as she is meant to be. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Not a church which is free of problems, but a church which is able to handle any problem, even death and martyrdom. My, my, my message to you once again then is to learn of her Learn from the early church and pray that God might do such things in our own day. And don't stop praying until he does. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 424.